this evening, I want to focus in on that passage from Micah that we just read, and I've given you an outline on the back of that first hymn that we sang, if you'd like to look at that uh, for reference. I grew up in a small town, not too far from here, and Bethlehem was a rather small town that, of course, we sing about, we think about, we read about uh, in the Bible uh, every year around this time and even some other times of the year as well. My hometown is not nearly as famous as this hometown uh, for good cause. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no divine Savior coming from Grand Bay, Alabama. We only need one, and he came from Bethlehem. But as we read this passage, there are a few things about it, uh, of course, that uh, are, or might be a little hard for us to understand. Uh, this uh, prophecy was given 700 years before Jesus Christ ever entered the, the, the stage of the earth the first time. So, you know, we think about Advent, this season of Christmas, and it's a time when we look back on the birth of Christ, the first coming of Christ to the world, and then we also are anticipating and looking forward to his return, his second coming. And so tonight we're going to go back even further 700 years before Christ came the first time, and hopefully rekindle in our hearts the hope of the, of the Messiah's coming, because it's promised here in this passage. Now, when we look at the passage, in the first verse, we see a situation that is hopeless. It's a little cryptic, but as we dig in, we can find what uh, is actually being referred to here he says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So what's described here, this hopeless situation, is a siege. Uh, Micah was writing during a time when uh, Israel had a, a very powerful enemy in the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a nasty group of people. Uh, they were ruthless and they were a scourge across the entire area uh, in a large part of the known world at that time. And so what eventually happens in about 722, uh, Assyria is going to conquer the nation of Israel and completely destroy uh, the Israelites. Judah uh, will be saved, but Israel will not. Micah's writing it during this time. So he's describing this siege. It's laid against probably, specifically, Jerusalem, because that's what happened. And you see what he's calling them to do. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And the word that's used there is not really uh, referring to an army or a group uh, or a large number of troops, but the word means a throng or a band of raiders. So what it's implying there is that there's meager military resources for the people to defend themselves. And Micah is saying, look, muster all you got. Muster all the little bits of military might that you have, but it's not going to come to anything because with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And that judge of Israel would be the Davidic king, uh, the king in the line of David, and he's going to be humiliated. And it looks like the demise of the Davidic, the Davidic dynasty. And that's really unthinkable when we remember what God had promised to David. 
centuries before. God had given a promise to David saying, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So they would have never considered that the Davidic king could be destroyed. But here this picture that Micah gives is one where it's happening. And everything is coming apart at the seams. And there's a time, it's a great time of distress and hopelessness. And that's where we begin here in Micah chapter 5. A hopeless situation. And as Ralph Davis said, this is so often where God begins. In our abysmal helplessness. And that's really what Christmas is all about. We're helpless without God intervening in our lives. And that's what he did the first time he came to earth. He took on human flesh so that he might deal with our problem, our sin problem. A hopeless situation for mankind that God is going to solve by the birth of this child that we're singing about and talking about and celebrating this Christmas evening. Well, here we have the hopeless situation. Then secondly, we have a salvation that is unexpected. So this mighty army is laying siege to the people of God, the capital city and the king of Israel. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That but you reminds us of the but God in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, he breaks in and he makes us alive with Christ, forgiving us our sins through what Christ has done in his life and in his death. But you, O Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a really small town, probably even smaller than the small town that I grew up in. It was about five or six miles south of Jerusalem, and Ephrathah was probably an older name for Bethlehem. It's too little to be mentioned, Micah says, and it's true. In Joshua 15... If you go read that chapter, it's where the children of God have moved into the promised land. You know, they were enslaved in Egypt. Moses led them out into the wilderness. And eventually Joshua led them across the Jordan River. And they started carving out their space in the promised land. And Joshua 15 talks about all the different cities and towns and areas that are given to each tribe. I had to read that once in a public worship service, and it's about 50 verses of Hebrew town names. It's a real nightmare. I'm not sure why we read that uh, in in public like that. But uh, anyway, you see there, there, there's all these towns, hundreds of towns listed, and and it tells you all the different towns that were given to the tribe of Judah. This is your area, Judah. They marked it all out. Judah is not mentioned out of all those hundreds of towns that are mentioned. It was just a tiny little spot on the map, maybe not even been marked on the map, but there it was. Ralph Davis says this, God is prone to choose the obscure, the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed, as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. You know, it's so true Who would have thought that this little baby being born in this little town, not even in a house or an inn, but out in the stable, 
in a food trough would be the Savior of the world. Very insignificant. And then to be raised in Nazareth in a town that was on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, everybody thought that Nazareth was not a good place to be from. I usually, when I talk about this, name some places, but I'm going to refrain from doing so because I don't know where everybody's from. And maybe you're from the wrong side of the tracks, but we all have in our minds a place that we consider the wrong side of the tracks. You don't want to be from there. Well, Nazareth was that place. And Jesus was raised there, and he was known as someone from Nazareth. That's how God often works. Through obscure things, through uh, incidents that we might not even attach any significance to, and then all of a sudden our life has changed because God has broken in with his glory and his grace. God doesn't go to Jerusalem, to the big city for the Davidic king. He goes all the way back to Bethlehem where David lived and was first anointed king. Back to the stump of Jesse as we read about in Isaiah 11. Now he says there that this one shall come forth for me. He shall come forth for me. See, the coming kingdom, this coming king, is for God. He's doing God's work. And Jesus affirmed that. He came to do the will of his heavenly Father. And his will was, the will of the heavenly Father was that Jesus Christ would lay down his life for sinners such as you and I. Well, when all seems lost, uh, we can forget and doubt the promise of God. But here we see God upholding his ancient, defiant, unbreakable promise. Some might forget the reasons that Christ came to earth the first time, and they may not really care about the fact that Christ is returning uh, a second time. And when he does return, it's going to be unexpected. And for those who have embraced Christ and the salvation that he provides, it will be uh, a wonderful salvation that comes at an unexpected time, but for others it will be judgment that was not expected. But we look forward to the promise of God. Thirdly, we see a sorrow that is uh, temporary in verse 3. Therefore, even though he's got this king, this promise uh, of salvation that's coming, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now the he there, it's God. God shall give them, his people, up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And I'll give you three guesses on the who she who is in labor is. Of course, that points to Mary. God is talking about the promise of the Messiah coming through the Virgin Mary. God is going to give them up. And that's the, that, as we look back through history, that's exactly what happened. Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. About 150 years later, the Babylonians ended up uh, conquering Jerusalem and Judah and sending the, these people into exile. All seemed lost for the people of God for a time. God is going to give them up, but only for a time. John Calvin says, Micah proclaims that even the faithful will experience being given up for a time. It's as if he were saying, My friends, God is going to allow your enemies to afflict you and you will experience no relief during your sufferings. Why? 
because God is not going to give you up as if he could not care less about you. That is why he warns you that you might be disposed to receive your afflictions with patience. You know, the Bible talks a lot about suffering, especially uh, Christ said that if you follow him, you will suffer persecution. And that's part of the experience that we have. The more faithful we are, the more we will probably experience that suffering. And then we have to deal with all the brokenness in which we live in this world, with sin and the, the curse that's placed on the earth and the brokenness of the world. But we wait And though we experience suffering for following Christ, we do not lose hope because it's only for a time. It's only for a time until he comes again and makes everything right. And he's going to do that. And then fourthly, we see a solidarity that is restored. This is in the second part of verse 3. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. A remnant is restored. This theme of the restoration of a remnant is all throughout uh, the Old Testament especially. You know, we look around us and it seems like fewer and fewer people are are, uh, appreciating the things of God. Fewer and fewer people in our experience seem to be believers, true believers in the Lord. And, and maybe we feel a bit like Elijah. Elijah ministered around this time, another prophet in Israel. And he thought he was the only person left who was faithful to God in all of Israel. And God reassured him that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to the false gods, namely Baal, uh, that, that were prevalent in the day. And the same is true Uh, here in Biloxi, Mississippi, the Gulf Coast, throughout the world in our day and time. God is building his church. We might feel alone. We might feel uh, a bit hopeless when we look at the cultural situation in which we find ourselves. But God is at work and he's building his church. And if we have a bit broader vision of things, we look throughout the whole world we see that the church is advancing and growing stronger. And we pray for the day when we see it come again in our own, uh, in our own area. So a solidarity is restored. God's people will be brought together. And uh, so be faithful to him. Fifthly, we see here a security that is lasting. Now in verses 4, the beginning of verse 5, he tells us about this king that's coming from Bethlehem. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall stand, it says, and they shall dwell secure. And and literally there it's sit. They will rest because he stands and vigilantly shepherds his flock They sit and dwell in security. He shall be their peace, it says. It's that beautiful picture that you have in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For his rod and his staff, it comforts me. The Lord is a good shepherd. Jesus said that about himself in John 10. He knows his sheep. And because he's our shepherd, we know security. Yes, there may be difficult times in our lives. There may be suffering as we've just talked about. But yet, knowing that Christ 
is the one who is in control of all things, seated on the throne and in, in shepherding us, we have that security that it's going to be all right. All things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28 tells us. He stands in the strength of the Lord, it tells us, and in the majesty uh, of the name of the Lord his God. God, the, d- the divine one, will sustain his kingdom and the government that he has given him. He's not just a, a human earthly king. Uh, he's a divine king. He's fully God and fully man, so he's very special. And the power that he has to make us secure is beyond any other earthly thing that we could rest our security in. And he says, now, there's another now in this passage, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. If you look back through uh, Micah, the word now signals bad things. Just like in chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Every time now comes up, something bad is in that verse. But this verse is different. There's something great. Worldwide greatness for this one who shepherds his flock. The Messiah's reign is mighty. It's steadying. It's triumphant. And it's universal. And we will see this come to fruition when he returns again. This is what we celebrate this Christmas season. Christ came into the world to save helpless sinners who have no hope. God has promised to bring to fruition everything he has promised through Jesus Christ. What is your hometown known for? My little hometown is known for watermelon. We have, uh, I grew up going to the Grand Bay Watermelon Festival every year. And some of the best watermelons you can buy are over there in Grand Bay. Well, Bethlehem stands for something. Bethlehem stands for the unbreakable, stubborn promise of God. It can't be falsified or terminated. What a great God we have. What a great Savior Jesus Christ is. Let's pray together.